step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories about alcoholism, addiction and recovery. This is Amanda and I am joined tonight by my co-host Ellie and Catherine is also here in the background and she'll be tweeting away during the re- the show. Hi ladies, how are you tonight? Well, I'm hey, good. Thanks Amanda. Great. That's good. Um, so we have had many requests to talk about sex, so we're going to talk about sex tonight. (laughs) Um, And there have been some fabulous guests on the show. Uh, We have some fabulous guests on the show that are going to help us with this topic. So intimacy, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with another person can be very difficult. Many of us have used alcohol or other substances to help remove our fears of intimacy, so the thought of being intimate while sober can be terrifying. Some of us were sexually abused as children. Some of us engage in unhealthy sexual behaviors as a result of our substance abuse and still hang on to feelings of shame about our sexuality. Some of us were afraid of getting sober because we thought it would be the end of our intimate relationship with our partner. Some Some of us simply find it hard to let go. On the other hand, some of us have found intimacy to be much more fulfilling and, well, intimate in sobriety. So let me start by introducing our guests who are going to share their experience with us. So tonight we have Sunny, Julie, Megan, and Beth. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Hi. We are truly grateful to all of you for agreeing to be on the show tonight. We know this is a tricky topic and really appreciate your um, service tonight. And we are also thrilled to have a very special guest, Tanya Kolesnik, um, who is a um, licensed social worker, life coach, and psychotherapist, and she's going to help us with the topic because this is a tough one. Um, Tanya Kolesnik is a life coach and psychotherapist since 1995 and private practice since 2000. She works with people who are stuck, people who know their lives could have more meaning, ease, excitement, or something different from the way that they're living at the time they seek out her services. She has also worked in mental health settings over the years with people suffering from various psychiatric diagnoses. With all of her clients, her approach is the same. She calls it the one agreement, which is a commitment she encourages us all to make to show up for ourselves, whatever that means for each of us, no matter what. Her philosophy is what 
is that we should always be checking in with ourselves to make sure that how we're living aligns with who we are and what matters most. She helps her clients to identify where they're not aligned, then helps them break down old habits that no longer serve them and build up new habits that do. She is also in the process of a new exciting venture, creating weekend retreats in upstate New York where her clients can pamper themselves and do some life-changing emotional work at the same time, which sounds very cool. Um, And by the way, she has her own personal connection to the topic of intimacy and sex and sobriety with the history of using substances to help remove the fear of intimacy, figuring out the hard way that it's a problematic approach. Um, So we really appreciate Tanya's insights. And Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with all of you. Thank you, Tanya. Tanya, this is Ellie, and I'm just going to jump in and get started um, with a quick starter question because I love your concept of the one agreement. And if you could tell us a little bit more about that and your own practice just for a few minutes, that would be very helpful. Sure. So the one agreement really evolved after years of working with people and realizing that I kept coming back to the same question of trying to help people figure out what mattered most to them um, and what was most authentic for them. So it was almost like a mantra, you know, make this commitment. If you can do this commitment, the rest will work itself out. And the commitment is to show up for yourself. And so, of course, it sounds very simple, but it's not. And figuring out for all of us what that means to show up for ourselves is, is where the journey is, where the work is. It's tricky um, and I came up with a few questions that just help figure that out. So one is, does this serve me? So every time you're trying to make a decision about anything to figure out, does this, whatever it is that I want to do, or I'm thinking about doing, does this serve me? Uh, and then the second question is, is this really my priority? And the third is, is this what matters most? Because sometimes... Something's a priority, but it's not really what matters most, but you might make an exception. So so all three questions, I think, work hand-in-hand hand and help to figure it out. And uh, and then the journey of figuring out what do you do with it. Once you figure out where you are aligned, great. But if you figure out where you're not aligned, to start changing old patterns, old habits, um, that's that's what I really help people do and break it down and be kind to themselves because it's not easy and it's complicated and uh, and it can change. I mean, for each of us, it can change um, on any given day what a priority might be. So, um, and the questions are true. I mean, my own life right now, trying to figure out if getting an extra hour of sleep is taking care of myself better than getting up early and going to the gym. So. They both are good self-care things. They both are showing up for myself, but which one matters most? So it gets tricky. Hmm. Thank you, Tanya. That's so it's really insightful and I and I love um how the the one agreement also really aligns with recovery because and in particular as it relates to our topic tonight, obviously active addiction and active alcoholism are all about not showing up for yourself right, exactly. and about old patterns that are extremely hard to break, um, both physically and emotionally. And also recovery is all about showing up for yourself, obviously, and doing it with self-compassion and kindness in the exactly. face of lots of 
massive changes and a lot of shame and guilt and the other things that come along with making those changes. So that's why we really feel so strongly that your insight and um, background will be very helpful. Um, Because this is a tricky tricky topic for everyone to talk about. It's... um, you know, everybody has different experiences. People even have different definitions, I think, of what intimacy is. But mm-hmm. um, given what you've described uh, just in a preliminary way about your background, um, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight and ask each of our guests to share their experience with intimacy and sex and sobriety and then have you give them a little bit of feedback after they share. And I think it would be helpful, um, you know, to think about what we just discussed as, as our guests are sharing of um how did that change for you before, you know, when we were in active addiction and hiding from ourselves and not showing up for our own lives and then having to be, you know, it's you're feeling vulnerable enough in recovery, you know, just living day to day and going to the grocery store and interacting with people, but let alone when it comes to sex and intimacy with a partner. So um, maybe a little bit of background on your own experience with um, what it was like before and after, and a, and a brief introduction of of yourselves and and who you are would be would be fantastic. So I think we should just jump right in in the interest of time. And Sunny, can we start with you? Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience with what we're talking about? Sure. Um, first of all, I'm so excited to be on the Bubble Hour because this is a show that's meant a lot to me, and to be part of it just feels like a big honor. So thank you, everybody. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. Um, I'm 58 years old. I've been married for 38 years. I've been with my husband for 42 years. And, you know, we started off the minute we met uh, having sex from the first minute we met. So it started off in a very sexual way. I was only 16 years old. And it's amazing that we're still together. So believe me, we've been through some um, incredible ups and downs. Mm-hmm. We have uh, two kids. They're grown and gone. And um, I love to sew and I love to practice yoga and read and cook and garden and camp and bike. And um, I feel like I'm having some, some good times. Um, my background as far as my alcoholism, um, I grew up in a middle upper middle class family, the fifth out of six children. My dad was alcoholic, um, but I didn't know it until he got sober when I was about 17. Um, and I, he actually brought me to one of his 12-step meetings when I was a teenager, and it was uh, kind of eye-opening. Um, I have two brothers who are recovering alcoholics, and so it's definitely uh, in the family. And I, I really didn't think drinking was a big issue in my family because it was hidden. My dad hid bottles all over the house, and I had no idea he was doing that. Um, and I had my first drink when I was 12 years old and got completely smashed and um, threw up all over the living room. And that was probably a clue that I had an issue um, and partied quite a bit through junior high and high school, uh, did a lot of pot and and uh, hung out with a gang of young gals and uh, guys. And we had a lot of sex in basement and I was a partying girl. Um, I met my husband when I was 16, and um, so it was easy for me to drink because he was 21, and going into bars, uh, I looked the age, so uh, it was easy for me to to drink. Um, and I got married when I was 20 and really got so drunk at my own wedding that I don't remember the honeymoon night. I probably passed out. And 
I drank pretty much my entire adult life, except for those two pregnancies. And um, I got more into partying and hanging out with my girlfriends and started smoking again uh, late in my 20s and early 30s. And um, this kind of went on and off for those years. But once the kids were grown and gone, uh, we really had a very happy, empty nest. We we were like having sex like all over this house. It was like it was incredible, and it was fun, but it was fueled by alcohol. And I really felt like alcohol was a drug in and of itself. And so I enjoyed the high of sex, but I liked to fuel it with alcohol. And I figured it could never go without one or another. I had to have alcohol in order to have, quote-unquote, fun with sex. Um, But in my early 50s, I started really getting restless, and I wanted more excitement. So again, I feel like this was sort of going along with the alcoholism escalating, that I wanted more excitement in the sexual experience. And I started taking exotic dance lessons, and I was in a burlesque show, and I was out there, and I... um, you know, we were looking for more excitement also as a couple. So we looked, uh, watched a lot of porn. I went to a lot of strip clubs with my husband. Uh, usually, um, again, got really drunk at those strip clubs and um, usually was too drunk to uh, come home and have sex. I did a lot of business trips. I got really wild and crazy on those trips. I did a lot of drinking and partying with strange men and, and also women. And that um, I've got still a lot of remorse and shame about those experiences. And um, those were very threatening to my marriage because I started to feel like I was drifting away from my husband, that I wanted more because I'd never been with anybody else. So I really felt like kind of a wild and out-of-control teenager. And and I was was drinking more with my girlfriends and I was driving home drunk. And finally... um, started to get back into some therapy. We'd been through some marriage counseling when we'd been married about 10 years and got back into therapy and it was about five years ago, which really started to help. And talking with my therapist, she asked me to visualize my alcoholism. And all I could see that it was a big black monster, a big black cloud that was on the edge of a cliff. And I wasn't ready to jump off the cliff to get away from this big black cloud. So it was clear that I was still in my disease, but I wasn't ready to uh, part with it. Um, I tried cutting back. I tried making promises to my husband. Oh, I'll only have two drinks, and I would have four. And I also started getting into yoga about six years ago and started to become a little more in touch with my body, but I was still drinking. And so this was the uh, struggle that I felt like... um, I just wanted to get rid of it. And I remember one time being at a family function where there was alcohol being served, and I was trying to not drink for the entire month of February. And I just had to leave that party because it was so hard for me. And I went out to the car and listened to my favorite um, CD by Eva Cassidy, and the song is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That song makes me sob every time I hear it because I remember just wanting that, magic, wanting to get over this disease and and be the person I really wanted to be. But I didn't feel like I had any power. I I felt hopeless. Um, And so this went on for many, many years. And um, 
last Thanksgiving, I I tried to have just one drink, and I did just have one drink, but it was just an awful experience because all I did was think about it all day. I'm only going to have one drink. I'm only going to have one drink, and it just it just became too much work. And um, finally, I actually tried something called EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique, and it's a tapping of yourself that tries to help rewire your neurotransmitters. And it, it, I think it really helped me because I was ready. And um, as of tomorrow, December 1st, um, it will be my first, it's my one-year anniversary of being sober. Oh, wow. Oh, congratulations. That's great. That's great. So Yay, congratulations. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So it's very meaningful for me to be on this show tonight. And, and I had posted on our um, the BFC that since I've been sober, sex is just incredible. Like, I can feel it. I have, like, double orgasms. I am, like, in tune with my partner. And I really... Um, feel like I'm more aware of my body and the feelings that I'm having and I really feel like 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 Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, you know, coming full circle, going away from home, looking for something out there that was right here all the time. So I really mm-hmm. feel like I have really gone over my rainbow and oh, and it's just awesome. I don't know. It's just great. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, do you have any feedback that you would yeah, want to share so, with Sunny? Is this indicative so just, of what you hear from some clients of yours and things? Well, I love what you said about the Dorothy reference, you know, that it was with you all along and that you were looking outside of yourself for this intensity that really mm. when you got in touch with your body and slowing down and being <coughs> present, it was actually mm-hmm. there and there in a much more genuine way when you were looking outside mm-hmm. you could never feel it it was right. like this insatiable thing that just got harder mm-hmm. and harder to try and and get for yourself and it mm-hmm. never went anywhere so right. um yeah. it, it it's a great story and and I, I would imagine for people listening such um hopeful story of what mm-hmm. could happen if you for some of us, if you can slow down enough and allow yourself to experience that real, I would imagine, connection. Is that something that comes up between mm-hmm. you and your husband? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Yep. Like he said the other day, you're just so much more observant of everything. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, everything. Of everything he does, everything around me. Um, so he gives me that feedback, and it's so wonderful that, that I am more connected to my, to my life. And yeah, it's really great. Yeah, yeah, and, and the word present keeps coming to my mind. Just very present mm-hmm. from your story. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got present. Yes, and I do. In your body, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly is very inspiring and and hopeful for for a lot of us to hear too. Not just in terms of what it feels like to recover and be in sobriety, but also the changes that can happen between you and your partner, and the and the sort of the blossoming that can happen not just for you, but between the two of you as well. That's really that's really a fantastic, mm-hmm. hopeful yeah. story. Thank you so much, Sunny. You're welcome. And, Thank you. And this is Tanya again. I just had a question too, and this isn't probably an easy question, but do you have any way of identifying some of the process? So I know that it was wrapped up in you becoming sober and you getting present and you connecting to your body. But even 
Because I would imagine some people listening might be like, oh, gosh, I wish it were that easy for me. Not that it was easy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't easy. But just yeah. kind of what went from the really struggle part of really full drinking and looking out there for the sexual connection and then starting to find it inside of you and connecting to your husband. Is there anything that you can say that would be helpful you know what I mean? Like you really push yourself to slow down or, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I got from yoga because I went to a, a, a vinyasa yoga, which is more powerful energetic yoga, which appealed to me as a as a type A person. I could never mm-hmm. just sit there and be quiet. So that kind of yoga is what helped me get into the practice of yoga, and then I started getting, oh, it's not just physical. This isn't just a workout. This is this is about slowing down your body and your mind and being yeah. more present with yourself. And it took me like six years to finally get that. Mm-hmm. So you don't just jump into a yoga class and go, oh, yeah, this is great. I, I'm totally connected now. It, right. it was a real process to, to get that. But you, I think it was the consistency of just keep showing up. That's mm-hmm. what my yoga teacher always says. The hardest part about yoga is just getting there and mm-hmm. showing up. But that is about being real with myself like as much as maybe I didn't want to go you know that day I I just showed up anyway and I said oh I'm just going to lie there and not do anything you think you know what it's going to be like and you don't so Mm -hmm. I really feel like I just kept showing up and um and and just being as humble as possible because uh, I think when when you're an active drinker I don't think you're humble at all (laughs) I think you think you just you think you've just got the world by the tail and mm-hmm. you think you control everything, and I'm just getting more used to letting things happen and just having to be okay with whatever. So mm-hmm. just being more humble, I think, has helped. Yeah. That's excuse me. I have a little bit of a cold. Thank you, Sonny. That's that's really helpful, and I'm actually taking notes as you're talking because that's something that mm-hmm. yoga is something that I experienced. Um, early in my recovery that I'd like to get back to, and I'm a particular fan of vinyasa yoga as well. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And next we would love to hear from Julie. Julie, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience as well. Hi there. You there? for having oh, me good. on okay. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was having a microphone issue. Um, so my name's Julie. I live in Canada with my husband and two kids. I've been married for 12 years now. Um, I grew up the daughter of a British couple who had emigrated here from Canada. I have an older sister. And we grew up in a home where alcohol was a daily uh, thing. You know, my father would drive home from work. He commuted to work, and he would drive home and stop at the local pub. And on certain nights, we would go join him. And other nights, he would arrive home, you know, 8, 9 p.m. in time to eat his dinner and go to bed, basically. And so growing up, um, it was a good childhood. It wasn't uh, by any means a horrible childhood. You know, it was a decently loving family. Uh, Not a lot of outward affection shown. Very British stiff upper lip. You suck it up and move along, and you're the best at what you do. So in school, I excelled. In my sports, I excelled. And I constantly, um, I think I sought the attention and validation of my parents um, by achievements. Uh, Probably always felt unworthy a little bit. Uh, Fast forward to 
uh, oh, I guess I should say I excelling in sports. I was on the junior national track team at, when I hit, you know, the preteen years and started having less supervision, able to go out with my friends. Suddenly a social life became super important to me and my sports began to dwindle into my later teen years and I got my first boyfriend and I remember how that felt and it was that feeling, that very first kiss. I can remember everything about that first kiss from this boy who I felt genuinely loved me. I can smell him. I can still feel the wind on my face that day. That's how imprinted on me this moment of intimacy was. And, um, you know, it was a great relationship for the the short period that it lasted. It's great in the sense of a 16-year-old girl's mind, if you know what I mean. He defined me. Uh, my older sister, she's three years older than me. Well, she, she was fortunate enough to meet an incredible man, and she married him when I was 16. And so my parents had been married, you know, since the beginning of time. My sister married her childhood sweetheart. And so when it came time for my own relationship and I discovered him cheating, something inside me kind of snapped. It was funny. This intimacy, which I expected to share with a single person in my life, I realized I wouldn't be. And from that time on, I I actually didn't drink when all my friends did. I tried drinking in grade 7. And I think it's because it was so, or it was around me everywhere. I, I, I really had no interest in drinking because I didn't approve of people losing control of themselves. I had this innate need to control myself at all times. And so, <laughs> excuse me, I didn't drink early at all. Um, but then by the time when this happened, when I was 18, when, um, you know, the relationship broke up, Within a month, I was smoking cigarettes, and I was drinking. I didn't bother applying to colleges. I took off on a last-minute holiday with my girlfriend in Dominican. The two of us went down to Dominican. I'm 18 years old. I'm drunk every day, promiscuous, making really stupid choices, and I have no idea in hindsight how I came home alive. I think I frightened myself so hardcore with that behavior that I um, took, I, did, I wouldn't say I took a break from alcohol, but what I did was I got myself a full-time job and I was working afternoons. Being a caregiver, I went to school and got a diploma and I was a personal support worker in a nursing home and I would get off work at 11, drive to meet my friend at a bar who also did the same job at a different facility and we would hammer back in succession, four shots and a beer, probably within 10 minutes of being in this bar. This is the behavior on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night that we have had with one another. And that continued for about three years. For three years, I lived my life with, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights being blackouts. And I would say to you, I don't think I had a single, even remotely serious relationship during that time. I, you know, worked hard at work. I was an exemplary employee, and I just partied really, really hard. I don't think I had many true friendships. I had friendships, yes, but they all revolved around spending time in bars. And uh, 
And I hated myself. I really did not care for myself whatsoever. I cared what I looked like, and it, I, I considered myself to be a sexual beast. I was, in my own eyes, this person who was desired by others and who was open-minded and knowledgeable and the best at what she did, no matter what we were talking about. But in truth, I wasn't enough for my own self. So, again, I kind of took a turn in my life. I actually went to a recruiting uh, day for the local military at the time. And they do a full analysis on you and an aptitude test, and it was a day of testing. And at the end of the day, they actually suggested that I become, um, I think it was either a counselor, somebody in the therapy field, or an engineer, a design engineer to be specific in the mechanical uh, engineering sector. And that lit up my insides because my father's a mechanical engineer. And so I think I had the whole daddy's girl syndrome going on, seeking the attention of the absent father. But I went out and I went to uh, local college and I looked up courses and I decided to go to school for mechanical engineering technology. And, you know, whether or not I'm going to talk about God on your program, and and I'm sure you won't be shocked because I'm anybody who knows me and knows I always end up talking about God, but I think he has a sense of humor because I applied to this course, and I had great intentions of living down by the college and, you know, living that college life that I'd given up for the three years or four years of partying I'd been doing at home in my small town. I had these grand dreams of what college life would look like to me. I couldn't afford it. My parents couldn't afford to pay for my college, so I was paying for it myself. So I actually had to live at home and commute to college, which completely reduced my drinking time because I was also holding down a bunch of jobs. I had three jobs going more often than not. So I did. I I put myself through college, and in my last year, there were, out of 300-odd of us who began the course, there were eight of us left, and I was the only woman. And then, uh, so we had a very last semester to do, and I made the very poor choice of, I went to a local bar to pick up friends. I was on my way home from a date in the city. As I was driving, my girlfriend called and asked me to pick them up from the bar and give them a ride home. I said, no problem. I went in, and I went back to old behaviors. I had some shots and a beer. I went to leave, and I had a tail light out and got pulled over. I did not feel inebriated at all, and I blew over, and I got a DUI. And unfortunately, what that meant for me was I could no longer commute to school to finish off my diploma. Um, So I had a a record of drinking and driving, and and again, I had disappointed myself and went into uh, what, in hindsight, is a deep depression. Didn't seek any any help. Instead, I rented a room in the city, got a job full-time as a bartender, and started working. And um, I didn't pursue a career in the beginning in my field of engineering, even though I was very, very experienced. I'd done many co-op jobs and such. I could have gotten a job. I didn't because I didn't feel worthy. And so one night I went out drinking with some friends and met this great guy who didn't fit my mold at all. At the time, I only dated successful older men, 
And I think I dated only successful older men because I knew that they wouldn't be seriously looking for a relationship with me. I didn't want anything serious. I meet this guy, he's nice as pie, and uh, he's currently my husband. I fell in love with him when I didn't (laughs) want to. He absolutely is just this dude who, he didn't want it either. We call each other our one night stands gone wrong. Because (laughs) it was from the very first night we were inseparable. And it's the big joke, you know, neither one of us wanted a relationship, yada, yada. And then God, again, with a sense of humor in my life, make something that I can't resist in front of me. Somebody with a pure heart who genuinely loves me, even though he can see all sides of me. Um, so I meet him. We start dating. Uh, the sex was amazing. Amazing. And then this funny thing happened where, oh, and in between there, I did get a job as an engineer, and I did go back to school and complete my diploma. Um, but that took, you know, some a bit of humility for me to even bother, if you know what I mean. It would have been easier to say, woe is me because I'm a martyr and bad things happen to me. But as far as intimacy, um, when we began dating, I was looking for the, you know, quick, rough, open-minded, crazy, intimate times together. And it was my husband who actually had to break through that wall of ice to show me what a slow kiss can, can feel like again. And that the trust that it takes for that slow kiss to be allowed, it's okay to, to put that trust out there. Because I had built up such a wall of protection around myself that slowing down in those moments and actually, as we've heard, being present within it, um, that was beyond me. And that is something that has ebbed and flowed throughout my life. You know, over the years with my husband, there have been times where I've had zero sex drive, none. And there have been times where it's almost like I'm frantically looking to one-up myself in, uh, you know, deviancy and interest in things that are so far to one realm, one end of the spectrum. Constantly. It's much, it's, it's exactly the same as my addictive behavior with alcohol, where it's that go-home or go-home feeling. And basically what I was doing was running from myself because in my husband and in our moments of true intimacy, I am myself and I find myself in those moments together. So in 2010, I, I, uh, was my day when I got sober, February, 2010. And it was after a night of, I think I was wearing a schoolgirl outfit, probably dancing on a chair in the house, if you know what I mean, (laughs) after far too many beverages. And, um, I was, uh, you know, every night that that I recalled being ever so sexy, something would happen, like I would fall off the chair, you know, in the middle of a dance or something. Uh, so it was after one of those nights. The unfortunate thing was that I had somehow faced myself in that night because I woke up realizing I had actually written a suicide letter. Mm-hmm. And that hole in my heart of self-hatred was still there, no matter how hard I tried to um, work through it all. And so I did. I got sober. I reached out to friends and family, attending meetings, uh, seeking help, the whole bit. By the grace of God, I did get sober. And I had 21 days where I was attending meetings and I was really opening up to people. In fact, in one of my early meetings, I wept profusely at this meeting full of strangers 
And I was not one to show my feelings. And here I was just, you know, bearing my soul saying, I cannot picture how to have sex with my husband without drinks. I I just can't see our life together. I, I can't picture being able to kiss him, being desirable, nothing. My best friend is dead. You know, part of me is dead. And and how can I be? How can I be? And it's funny because the lady at, at that meeting looked at me and told me to open up the text that the 12-step meeting is based on and turn to page 69 because that's where the answer is. And it was it was on page 69, which, again, I find... A little bit amusing. Sitting <laughs> 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 here trying you know not I mean? to laugh. <laughs> yeah. I know, and and you have to remember, the woman was like in her seventies and totally proper. <laughs> and I just thought that was oh, that's so awesome, God. You know how funny. And basically, throughout this bit of text, the end result is for me to get out of my own damn head because I'm just not that important. And in when I say that, I mean in the sense that I had to learn that in sex, it's about two people. It's not just about me. So if I'm sitting there concerned so much in the moment about myself or how I'm feeling or this or that, rather than experiencing what is happening and sharing that moment, also wondering how he's feeling in a positive way and and truly experiencing it for what it is. You know, getting out of my head and actually feeling, allowing myself to drop the facade and feel. So super, super slowly, we started reconnecting. And I remember it was, I think I was two weeks sober, and we were making out like school kids. That was it, just with the agreement that it would go no further. But there was this kissing happening, and it was amazing. And then when I was... um, I was still working when I got sober. I was working in a pretty um, stressful, high-visibility job in a corporate industry. And I was driving home from work on the 21st day sober on a major highway, and it was black ice day, and somebody lost control. And my car, I ended up with somebody six feet in front of me stopped sideways in my lane, and my car T-boned underneath this vehicle. And from that accident, I was left with um, back injuries and physical injuries that, and a brain injury, which changed my life entirely. I, I couldn't work anymore. I couldn't sit up for more than 15 minutes at a time. It was all internal muscle, deep muscle tissue, bruising and whiplash and these things. And um, I, I think I lost the last vestige of who I was. And... If you want to see a person who is devoid of the capability of intimacy, that was who I was. I had to learn over the last four and a half years how to be alone with myself, let alone how to be alone with another human being, and give to them and receive from them. And, you know, the way I did that, I'll be completely honest, is by messing it up a million times by making my husband feel alienated, by regretting my selfishness, and by learning how much he is a part of me and I'm a part of him. And sometimes you have to put aside the fact that it's been a bad day. Sometimes you have to put aside the fact that the kids are inconsolable and that you're tired. 
and just reach out and give that hug that you really deep in your soul don't want to give to anybody. It's it's by um, it is it is intimacy. It's an act where I receive, but it's an act where I'm giving. That that giving is my intent. That's my motivation for intimacy. It's not actually about me. Although I will admit I really dig a lot of it <laughs> in the now. <laughs> because the intimacy we have now is a million times better than than the wild, open-minded, you know, fast-paced intimacy we had before. And we're not old and we're not dead. But um, when I gained 50 pounds after the car accident and didn't want to look at myself and didn't want to be seen. Those are feelings I can't even relate to anymore because nowadays, and it's it's not about my body image, it's about my openness and self-love because I've, because I lost almost entirely who I was and had to rebuild the amount that I value myself is incomparable to before. You know, I am so blessed and honored to be here that sex is something I see as a gift and intimacy is something I see like like breath. The intimacy I share with my husband is about <clears throat> being vulnerable with him and giving him that as a gift. I, I hope that makes sense. I think I'm kind of... Oh, sure. yeah. It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Julie. Tanya, Tanya, I would love to hear your feedback on what Julie had to share. Yeah, I mean, I loved a bunch of things that you said. One in particular is the four and a half years that you spent learning to be alone with yourself and how important that love was or is in order for you to have that intimacy with your husband. And, um, you know, I think we all need to remember how important that piece is because sometimes we do think so much it's about... And I know you were talking a lot about it being about your connection to him, but it had to start with you first connecting Mm -hmm. to yourself and then getting out of your own way and being able to connect to him. So, um, you know, I had a question. You said something earlier on about you had gone from zero sex drive to some more deviant behavior. And was that when you were very up and down with your sex? Is that when you were drinking? Is that... Well, it was actually over different times over the years. I mean, uh, when we first moved in together, it was almost like the reality of that came crashing in, and I put myself in the box of being the wife. And to uh-huh. me, I mean, you know, I wasn't I wasn't exposed to my parents' sexuality in any way. There was no hugging. There was no kissing, nothing like that. And so I think subconsciously I put myself into that box, into a certain role, and then later it was, you know, underactive thyroid, um, postpartum, you know, different times. So many factors, yeah. Right, and it would just yeah. go away. And so as a woman, I mean, I think this is something that's so not at all talked about enough. I really do. I think that we as women, we have, I mean, my gosh, if we could turn on a light for our, sexual, for our sex drive, that would be a wonderful thing, but it doesn't work that way. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just all the, some of the physical things, the depression piece, the even the mental part you were saying, how you understood it to be and what you expected of yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, 
there's a certain image, at least in my 20s, within the culture of what a sexy woman, uh, what their value is and what mm-hmm. they would act like or look like or whatever. And, you know, I sought as in typical fashion, uh, type A personality, I sought to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that goes right back to your whole achievement thing. And when sexuality and connection and intimacy really is about letting go. But if well, you're exactly, thinking, that's why I couldn't ever, throughout it all, I didn't achieve the depth of intimacy that we have now because I couldn't, because I wouldn't allow myself to. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, and I'm thinking too, like the way I came to this idea of the one agreement, right? Just one agreement. The way you were talking about the sex piece is the connection. If you all you uh-huh. focus on is having that connection, the rest will work itself out. Uh-huh. This yeah. is Ellie. I don't want to deviate too much from this, but I I have a question that I wanted to pose, and and um, we did a. It relates to what you shared about. Um, finding yourself, becoming comfortable with yourself. I kind of refer to it sometimes as sort of I need to fall in love with myself before I can really fall in love with anybody else or go to that intimate place. And um, we did a show recently about people-pleasing and shape-shifting. That's such a big part of a lot of our addictive stories, and even a lot of us struggle with it in recovery also, and how challenging it can be to find that in the context of a relationship, if you're in a serious relationship or married or with a partner. And um, thoughts or suggestions about how we can set about doing that in within the boundaries of, a, of an existing connection with somebody within an existing relationship. Sometimes it's foisted on us and we're alone, not by our own choice. But if we are um, intimately tied to somebody through marriage or through a relationship, how does one go about finding that comfort with, within oneself first without s- sort of defaulting to that martyrish place that we can all go? Well, I, I, you're asking me, right? It's yes, talking, talking, yes, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a matter of learning how to set really good boundaries for yourself and making sure that there's time set aside for you and time to explore what matters to you and couple time as well. I mean, that can be a priority for yourself, even though it is in the relationship, but to figure out what you need to talk about when you're struggling with it, I love what Julie said about messing up a million times because I think that that is such a huge part of the process is messing up and seeing what happens. So to find yourself is to know, I think sometimes, and I experience this sometimes, is when I start to realize I'm overdoing taking care of everybody else and I'm neglecting myself, okay, I need to really get good about taking care of myself, and it helps me prioritize that again. Does that make sense? It does, and I think sometimes recognizing the symptoms of overextending for others is, can be challenging, at least it can be for me. You know, yes. sort of the wheels are starting to come off the bus before I understand that that's exactly what I've been doing because it, it feels right for me. It's sort of, again, my default setting is to, to do everything for everybody else because I, I think that makes me feel good. I think it's the right thing. Um, but so it's so it's really an action thing. It's an action item to put to prioritize self care and to realize that doing things like that is not a selfish act. In a lot of ways, it's selfless because it can only enhance the connection that you're able to have with other people. When yeah. when my own my own tank is full, <laughs> I'm a much better um, you know right. second half to another partnership. If if that also makes sense. 
Yeah, but it, but you're right, and I'm sure you talked about this in the radio program you're referring to. Is it's so easy for us in this culture to think that it's better to be taking care of people and doing such a good job doing it, and um, and there is, I think, sometimes this we see when people are selfless as such a good thing, but mm-hmm. it's not, and. Um, there are time and a place. Sometimes we may say, you know what, in this case, I'm going to give a little bit more of myself. But if you keep neglecting yourself, for any of us, if we keep neglecting ourselves, we have to learn what the red flags are, what are the warning signs. And for me, I know I start to get a little um, revved up because I'm busy sort of doing stuff for everybody else and I'm not slowing down enough. When I start to recognize my own revved up pattern, it helps me start to slow down and, and remember. So for all yeah. of us to learn what's a sign when I'm doing too much. That's helpful. For other Thank people. You. I appreciate that. Revving up is definitely something I do also. <laughs> Another evasionary tactic of mine. It's a favorite place to hide is in too busy. That's a Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I we I want to keep things moving here too, Julie. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. It was extremely helpful and insightful, and as always. Um, now, how about Megan? Can we hear from you? Sure. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, so I'm 35, and I'm on my uh, second marriage. Um, I've been I'm six months sober. Um, so I grew up in a house that was very free with nudity. Uh, and open about discussing sex. Um, But I was always the responsible one, and I didn't actually have sex until I was 18 because I thought, oh, if I have it when I'm 18, then I could take care of any consequences. (laughs) Uh Uh, I grew up drinking occasionally and um, a bit more wildly from ages 18 to 20 um, because I always looked older than I was. Uh, I had sex with several guys in fun, wild, outdoors, you know, different things, different ways. Um, But I married at 21, and I was married for seven years. Um, And my ex-husband was emotionally abusive and wouldn't permit me to have any alcohol um, because his father was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, So I didn't didn't miss it because it was never a big thing in my life. Um, And we had one son. And throughout our marriage, we had a lot of sex, uh, daily or more, to the point where it was almost feeling like a chore. Um, It was awesome, but it could also be too much. Uh, When we finally got divorced, uh, he had actually um, cheated on me, um, but still it took me a while to uh, break free of that. Um, And once I did get divorced, I started drinking wine to cope with the emotional hole that that divorce had left. Um, But even more, I acted out sexually with uh, random hookups and friends with benefits. And uh, I enjoyed the physical release from that, but... um, and that I was able to kind of be selfish and ask for what I wanted because it wasn't something where I had to make that person happy. I mean, I had to, we had to both enjoy it. That person could ask it for what they wanted, but I felt freer to ask for what I want because it didn't feel like there were so many things outside the bedroom tied to that. Um, let's see. So I, I was also able to let go of those folks when one or both of us decided we were moving on to something else. Um, and I've always been pretty pragmatic, so casual sex was never um, something that you know, kind of tied me up in knots. So I met my current husband about five years ago, and it was very seriously love at first sight. Um, we had our first date and shut the 
shut the place down, and then uh, I went home and had a dream about a blue-eyed, curly-haired little girl. And uh, this past year, we had a blue-eyed, curly-haired little boy, but uh, close enough. Um, he had some pretty strict boundaries about intimacy, um, and he wouldn't, wouldn't have sex until after six dates. Um, so on date six, I'm climbing up and, you know, getting ready for it, and he's like, uh, I mean, I mean, finish six dates and let's get to the seventh. <laughs> And that should have been a sign, uh, but I didn't see it. So once we were married, my husband told me about some proclivities he has um, and also admitted that he isn't very interested in sex uh, at this point in his life. He's about nine years older than me. I'm 35. He's 46. I guess 11. Yeah. Anyway. Um, So, you know, uh, in the past five years, we've had sex about six to eight times a year at most. Um. So we went to couples counseling to talk about it early on because it was a big deal for me. Um, I didn't quite realize how much I needed it until it wasn't available. Um, when I explained how hurt I was and how undesirable I felt and um, expressed the things I would do to get him interested, the counselor called me a fishwife and said she didn't blame him for not sleeping with me. Oh so I was in this, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. pretty harsh. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty distressed and uh, he says he still says today that I just didn't like what she had to say and maybe she was right that I was being harsh in in expressing how I felt how negative I felt about the fact that he didn't want to sleep with me but still that's kind of that was pretty bad so um, it's kind of a cosmic joke because I found a guy that I adore who's just the kindest most compassionate funny guy and sex is just the one thing I can't get from him which has killed me because I'd you know, love to have that relationship with him. Um, so uh, my drinking took off while we were dating, and then by about year two or three, uh, switch was really flipped for me. Um, I drank for a bunch of reasons. Um, I was in law school at night, raising kids, working full-time. Um, but I also really drank at the fact that I wasn't having sex, and I made that known. Um, and it was a destructive cycle of drinking, lashing out, being cruel to him about not sleeping with me, and then passing out so I wouldn't have to cry myself to sleep alone in our bed. <clears throat> um, he was incredibly kind and patient with me throughout my alcoholism, but it hurt him, and he would say, why do you keep lashing me around the head with not about my lack of desire because it's not going to change it, and it's just you know kind of destructive. Um so since I've gotten sober, um, I've really enjoyed being more intimate with him by just sitting on the couch, holding hands, trying to be kind of at peace. But it is a hole that's been hard to fill because, like I said, that would help me kind of um, get away from the fact that that was something that, that hurt me and that I needed. Um, I'm kind of at my sexual peak at this point, at 35, and uh, he's still uninterested. So um, neither of us really see that changing. We've had a lot of frank discussions. Um, and since I'm not being able to drink it, I've found myself acting out in other ways. Um, one example is that I have a nice collection of Lilo sex toys to help myself um, and a whole bunch of porn. Um, in, in an attempt to connect with him intimately, I've asked him to come just lay down next to me and hold me, you know, while I take care of things. And uh, th- that conversation happened about two months ago, and that still hasn't happened. So um, at this point, um, I you know I don't want to be living my life resenting him for that, mm-hmm. but I don't I, I want to stay with my husband because I love him. So 
I've realized that 90% of our marriage is awesome. It really truly is. Uh, I adore him as a partner, a friend, an occasional lover, but I, I, I need more sexually. So while we focus on enjoying each other's company in loving ways and connecting that way, uh, we are discussing the option of an open, don't ask, don't tell marriage. Um, I want him to be happy and have the type of sex he wants when he wants it and from the type of person he prefers without a fishwife nagging him about it. Uh, I also want that for me because toys just aren't enough. Um, I'm hopeful we can come to some agreement so that when we do have sex, it's fun and sweet and loving and not filled with she didn't do this or why won't he do that. Um, I am happy and relieved that he seems to be up for it. Um, He helps make my life and our kids' lives so much better, and I do truly see him as my life partner. Um, But that's where we are right now. Thank you for sharing that, Megan. Tanya, what are what is your what are your thoughts on this? I just have so many questions. Um one, you said you have sex maybe six to eight times a year. Does he initiate ever? Is it usually you or is it only when he initiates that he's willing to get into it? At this point it's only when he initiates because if I initiate and get rejected, that's just too much for me. That was all yeah. I mean, pretty much after a year or so I just stopped asking because Okay. It hurt too much. Yeah. And has he communicated to you each time that he's just not interested or doesn't feel capable of changing this or isn't interested in changing this or both? I think he'd be interested, but he says he's not capable. And he says, look, if I'm not in the mood, I'm not in the mood, and you need to stop harassing me about it. I just don't want it. Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah. So... It's a tough one. I mean, I guess I feel sort of stuck with you because I I feel like there could be stuff that he could, that the two of you as a couple, but also him individually could work through. I think sex for people is complicated, and so people Mm -hmm. can have issues with sex that can get worked through if they're willing and open, even though it's hard. And, And so I wonder, you know, because... On the other side, if you don't do that, then you're stuck either doing this outside the marriage thing, which some of when you were speaking, it came in and out a tiny bit, so I just want to make sure Mm -hmm. I heard you. Did you say he was in agreement with that and that is the plan? Um, I don't want to speak too much about his personal proclivities, but um, one of the things he wants I really can't give him, and so Mm -hmm. I think he is. And he is intrigued by the idea because he could get that elsewhere. Okay. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, he was, we've talked about it a little bit, and he is open to it if he can find the right person for that. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I I don't know, I'm I'm okay with that idea if mm-hmm. we don't have to, you know, if we have our boundaries and our rules and, yeah. you, know, it, yeah. uh, you know, I've read a lot about it where if one, you know, if one partner is not comfortable and wants to stop, then everybody stops. You know, as there's long as you guys are it. real clear about what yeah. the boundaries and rules are, then you feel. Yes. And I think it can work, but you guys have to be real careful about the communication around it. And, of course, there's also potential for problems with it. You know, yeah. you're opening up a, a door, so it's a little bit scary. Um, but it sounds like you're just accepting that it's not in your life is not the way to go. That's not who you are. I can't. I cannot mm-hmm. live without yeah. sex. I just can't. Yeah. And I can't live with just toys because that's just lonely. Yeah. 
and then I get resentful. It spills into other parts of our marriage, and I don't want that. I want to be happy right. and not resentful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is Ellie. I would think it would also become a recovery issue to a degree because you spoke so eloquently about the drinking at this issue, and I think that's something we're all familiar with. Um, as we get sober, there's always things, the root causes behind our drinking and things that are triggers for us. And, you know, I, I give you a lot of credit for addressing it head on and, and being able to get sober and stay sober in the face of something that has obviously been a contributing factor to your drinking as well. Um, mm-hmm. So this ties into the self-care and the showing up for ourselves. I mean, that really, Tanya, I think it, it ties in a lot to what you've been talking about with the one agreement and what is it that we need to do to make sure we're, our needs are met and our voices right. are heard and that we're, right. we are able to show up for ourselves. But this involves not just one person but two. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how, yeah. how well, to reconcile that, that is challenging. This is that honesty that they talk about in recovery that I'm, tr- I'm trying to be authentic and honest and honest without being hurtful in my um, feelings on the subject with him. And I feel like that's made it easier for us to talk about it, whereas before it was always you're not or you know, why are you? And now it's, this is how I feel. This is what mm-hmm. I need. Mm-hmm. What can we do about it? And that's it. Yeah. It seems like the conversation's gotten calmer. Good. Yeah. And I think, too, it's like everybody's got their own way of showing up for themselves. It's very individualized and to figure that out. And it sounds like it's not an easy journey, obviously, but you guys are having the communication necessary to start figuring it out. Okay. This is um, this is Amanda. And, uh, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say um, I, I, I can relate, I, I relate a lot, and I think one thing that for me and um, one thing that I think it's great that you're doing, like in recovery, uh, what was I going to say, that you 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 learn to see what you need and actually speak up for yourself. That's that's um that's you know a really important thing and it takes I know for for me it took a while um to first at first it was, you know, I knew I had to take care of myself but I also I spent a lot of time with um you know, I had been selfish before in my past uh, about you know, my wants and needs, it was just what I wanted and needed. And so then there was a period of time in my earlier recovery, and I guess I'm saying this because, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, six months is, that's awesome, but, it's, you know, you stood, it's still early in recovery. I There was a, a time that I had to grow where, um, which you seem to have already done, where I could I could actually ask for something for myself. Like I think I'd, I had... I was beating myself up, and, and and I just had to check and make sure that my motives were clear, which uh, or or were right, which is um, mm-hmm. yours definitely are, and you know that's it's just um, that's it's really great that you're doing that, but it is definitely a recovery issue too. Like you know, you definitely mm-hmm. I identify a lot with drinking at the situation that I was in, and. Um, you know, standing up for yourself is very important. So, and just the other piece you mentioned that your husband's been very kind and patient. I think you said it was about mm-hmm. your husband, but also for you to do that for yourself or each other. I mean, and take it slow. And and um, you know, you're. I feel like you're sort of at the beginning of a very 
what can be sort of a hard-growing journey that you're on <laughs> and um, just to give yourself some time and, and to take it slow and, and take each step and, and give yourself a chance to adjust and, and sort of grow with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And and that's the thing. It's hard in recovery not to just stuff that empty hole full of something else, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not to be punny, but... <laughs> Um, (laughs) that took me a second but I got there yeah (laughs) but you know I mean yeah so I I don't have to fill that need 100% right away but I would like to feel like we're working towards it so again so that resentment can go away right but the other piece too that as you were speaking is a lot of clarity you've identified that it's something you're not willing to compromise about and you need to have. And that clarity is such an important part for all of us as we make choices. If you can be clear about something, it's just really a helpful part of the process. This is Ellie. That struck me, too, that, um, you know, talking about self-care and how it can be challenging and, and, and figuring out what it is that we need or want for ourselves to feel whole and Sometimes for me, it's not, I don't necessarily know what it is that I need, but I know, or what I want, but I know what I don't. And that clarity did come across, Megan, when you were sharing that, you know, there are certain things that you're not willing to live without, and you don't have to have all the answers or solutions, but that, that, that I think is part of showing up for ourselves. That's part of the boundaries, perhaps, Tanya, that you were referring mm-hmm. to, that um, the boundaries for ourselves also, that... Um, you know, when I was actively drinking and in early recovery also, I was so unaccustomed to feeling my feelings and, and identifying what they were and expressing them that even now, a lot of times, if I'm not even sure where I'm headed, I know where it is that I don't want to go anymore or I don't want to go again. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was a very powerful part of what you shared, Megan. Thank, Thank you. you for that. All right, Joey? well, let's... Uh, Let's move on to our next, um, our last guest here, Beth. You've been patiently waiting. Could we hear a little bit about yourself as well? Yes, sure. I'm, I've identified with parts of everybody's story. It's been amazing to listen to. So um, I am um, I'm married. I just had my 10-year anniversary with my second husband, my first husband in um, and I got married when I was 17 and um, seven months pregnant with my son, who's now 30 years old. And I was married the first time around and, um, you know, came from a alcoholic, um, you know, a home and um, pretty dis- dysfunctional, although my mother was, was sober. Um, I was abused as a child and 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 spent a lot of time in um in sexual abuse recovery in those early years and um and wasn't a drinker back in those days i got divorced and and went into major survivor mode and um actually willed myself to be a type a person um put myself through college and and get tried to get on a track um you know off of the the welfare line and um you know i fast forward many years later and um and sort of like what megan said when i i went on my first date with my husband it was like 
this this one I'm marrying this guy. This is the one. Um, I've never felt so. Um, you know, it was like in the first time in my life I really felt. Um, not on that first date, that would be weird, but, you know, it didn't take long for me to really know that this was somebody that I could count on, that, um, you know, had un- unconditional love and that was, you know, truly selfless. And um, and I was just so used to being around alcoholics who were so selfish and, and, um, and I was so used to going at it alone and, 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 um, you know, surviving, just being, you know, this fighter. And um, and I just um, knew that with with my husband, with this guy, I was going to be able to relax. And um, and I really believed that that was, um, he was destined to be my husband. And I... Um, I was a very soulful person. I was had been in Al-Anon for many years back in those days. I wasn't a drinker. I was just like a classic good girl, you know, teen mom gone right. And um and um um so I had the script written out in my head what was going to happen. And, you know, in my dating years, I was um, able to pretty much go out with anybody who I wanted to. I was um, I was probably a great catch for guys because I was, you know, if, of childbearing age, but I really wasn't, I could have cared less about getting married or committing. And so I had a lot of casual sex, a lot of boyfriends coming and going. I, um, you know, and this was in the context of recovery from sexual abuse. So through all of that, I was reclaiming my body and, and um, you know, um, becoming Xena Warrior Princess, you know, running marathons and just very of the body and um and free and um you know learned how to have orgasms i mean all of this sort of thing and so um um what happened was that you know as my my husband and i started getting close and dating um it wasn't going the way i wanted it to go in the bedroom and I um, I had, you know, what the way I the way I see it now, and I will be God willing sober a year on December twentieth. But the way I see it now is is that I still had this alcoholic personality, and when um, you know things didn't go my way, I really I raged, and I lectured and I pontificated and I had all the answers for this guy and you know um in hindsight now and after a lot of therapy um marriage counseling and and sex counseling and everything you know I realized that that was a damaging time um I still wasn't really drinking I mean I wasn't not drinking but it I was always very careful about drinking. It was all part of the control that I kind of exacted around in my life. But 
this was something that was hitting a nerve for me because, you know, one thing that was a part of my, like, happily ever after story was that I was finally going to be able to, you know, have the full expression of an intimate relationship with the man that I love. And, and um, you know, the, the part that I really didn't think about very often was that, you know, my husband had his own story and he, um, you know, he has his own issues. And part of what he was attracted to with me was that I was so free and that I was sexual and, um, you know, um, not necessarily you know, adventurous, but not unadventurous. I I just was regular, I guess. And um and um but you know, my husband grew up in a in a very uh repressive Christian almost cult family. And um, you know, it had a hard impact on him. Um, the shame around sex and the and the um you know, just pushing down those instincts because those instincts are bad. Um, you know, they took it, their toll on on him. And we would talk about this openly because I love, we loved each other and I loved him and I wanted to help him. But I would um, scream at him, you've got to get in your body, you know, when I was doing yoga and I was saying, you need to deep breathe, you know, (laughs) and, um, you know, it was just insane, you know, and, and, um, you know, like, you know, like Megan said, you know, 90% of this was perfect, and I just, I wasn't budging on the other 10%, and it really did downward spiral from there, and it, you know, did damage to both of us, and, and, and you know just fast forward you know many years later i began you know i had i i guess i never heard that drank at the problem but that's what i what i started to do and i did feel that loneliness and that frustration um i stopped asking for sex and i you know we'd have major major fights and try every sort of therapy in the world and i would try every kind of personal advanced, you know, personal growth thing and meanwhile drinking all along and, you know, going to hot yoga, like hungover. And, but the the one thing that I was never willing to let go of was the drinking because I'd never, you know, felt I deserved to be an alcoholic after everything I had been through already. And, you know, in the past year of, um, you know, there was a lot of drama that led up to my final drink and, you know, um, but, you know, what I feel like I've really come to believe, and I feel like it's been kind of like a gift, is that, you know, my sexual relationship with my husband is one thing in my whole entire life, and and the alcohol was sort of overlaying everything, definitely, but it was also its own whole thing. And I've come to really feel that, you know, I was um, going to become an alcoholic no matter what. It was just that because I was such a good girl, I kept it at bay, you know, while my older kids were growing up and stuff. But when I looked at my life, with the, I have another baby, um, a six-year-old, and, you know, and when I was looking at 
what I was doing separate from him. You know, I realized not everybody would drink as a result, you know, in reaction to this situation. I mean, my husband certainly wasn't drinking about it, and he was in the same boat as me. And um, and I, it was a big, it, it was definitely a triggering thing for me that my marriage and my intimacy wasn't where I wanted it to be at all. But I, I think that for me, like, realizing that not every that reason I drank over it was because I was an alcoholic really set me on a track and um I really um you know have had uh, a lot a lot of un- unfolding in awareness in the last year and um one a couple of the awarenesses are like I come from a big family too I'm the youngest of five and I have four older brothers and um there's nothing like being with my brothers. They're all active alcoholics. It's the most lonely feeling in the world to be with them. And I realized that my husband would say that. He said, "What is it about you guys? You know, you're with you're with we're with you and you're awesome and you're engaging and but there's this loneliness to you and there's this vacancy, there's just this disconnect and I don't feel like you you guys are really there." And I feel like that is the number one thing that's changed in this past year with my husband. Um, I just feel like I'm there and um, I wasn't there. And, you know, I certainly wasn't there in an intimate way when I was standing on AM. soapbox, you know, preaching about mm-hmm. the right and wrong thing to do. I mean, um, and it was all out of love, but it just didn't work, you know. And I've just found that the intimacy with my husband is slow, you know. And I do think that we're mismatched, you know. I mean, I would have sex every day, um, you know, if I could, and he wouldn't. But I don't think that he's ever going to be that way. But I just feel like um, an acceptance about it. You know, I used to um, I used to cry because I would say I'm going to lose the one man in my life I've ever loved about this, and um, mm-hmm. I don't want to lose him. And I, people, you know, but I, but I felt so emotionally out of control. I didn't really know that I didn't, that I had a choice, you know. And it's been a very slow, but um, gratifying feeling. And so, the right now, if you took a temperature gauge of my husband and I. You know, we we don't have sex very often, but when we do, I appreciate it, and I'm grateful. And I haven't, I wasn't like that. It used to be that when we would have sex, I would be mad because, yeah, we had sex now, but why did you know we'd never have sex? We hadn't had sex in months, and so, what difference does it make? And now I just don't feel that way, and um, I still pray for my marriage, and I still want it to be um 
more sexual marriage, and so does he. But um, I used to feel so hopeless, and I don't feel hopeless, you know. I mean, I, I sat in the bathroom one day screaming and just think fantasizing about slitting my wrists. And um, that I remember that because I was just, my feelings were just so wild and out of control. But now I feel like bit by bit, little by little, um, we are getting closer together and we'll have a moment. You know, I used to, I used to say, you know, why don't you just slap my ass, you know, and when you walk into the kitchen or look at me, and he didn't know what I was talking about, but now, like, it's starting to happen, not the slaps on the ass, but the feeling, you know, that we're there with each other. And um, and I'm, I feel like I'm somebody who's early on in the game at a year, and I feel, like, grateful that I have patience, and I don't feel fearful that our marriage is going to end and, and um, cause I've never wanted anybody but him, you know, and, and, and I think Megan said that too, you know, it's really, really hard, lonely feeling, uh, to, you know, want your husband and love him so much and not be able to have him. And definitely you could justify drinking over that. It, but it doesn't make you get any better, you know? But not mm-hmm. drinking for me has just been a freaky key to unlocking whatever the problem was. So, um, oh, I like the way you put that. Yeah, it's sometimes the greatest insights come from the greatest pain if we're, if we're staying open and teachable to what they have to show us. That's really beautiful, Beth. Yeah, and the vulnerable thing just is a lot. I mean, being vulnerable... I always thought I was being vulnerable, but I've never been so vulnerable in my life as I've been this last year. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was being vulnerable, and I just didn't know. And my husband would say, you just don't let anybody in. You don't, you know, you're not vulnerable. You're not humble. You're not, you know, and, and he wasn't saying it to be a jerk. He was just marveling at it. And now he's, like, falling in love with me in a different way because I really am vulnerable. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. more like the the purest me. And um, so wow. there is hope, you know. There is hope even for a guy. You know, if I would have asked, I would have said, oh, my husband has erectile dysfunction. I'm fucked, you know. And um, when... Now what am I going to do? And it just to just not feel that way anymore is just such a gift, you know, even though the whole problem's not solved, you know. So, yeah. so this is Tanya speaking. I, I would say with your story, the, the thing that's the loudest is that hope and how that's the beginning of this other journey. And even if it's slow, I always tell people it doesn't matter if things move really, really slowly, as long as they're moving in the right direction, then you'll get there. And I hear a lot of the patience um, and that you're there now, you're present now, you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And I feel like we've come full circle a little bit with that idea of being present. And it seems like such an important part 
of where you are right now and acceptance. Yep. That's right. That's what Sunny was talking about as well with the yoga and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And having the courage to feel the feelings. I mean, another theme is this showing up for ourselves and you know, it, it's a such a it's a blessing even when it hurts just to have the privilege of understanding myself and you know, I it, the courage it takes to be vulnerable. I love how emotional you you are talking about this Beth because it's the kind of genuine heartfelt emotion that, you know, I was drinking at problems or numbing out problems, but we don't get to select what it is that we numb out. We numb out the joy and the happiness and the gratitude and all of the peace of mind. All those things go with it. Um, Mm -hmm. So by taking away all that anesthesia, we feel everything. But um, the way you spoke so eloquently about having the acceptance of whatever it is and, you know, being kind to yourself and being patient. It's a very powerful, powerful message that you that you spoke very eloquently about. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, if we don't... So go ahead, Amanda. I'm going to toss had, it over uh, to you. Oh, can I, can I just make one more comment? Oh, sorry, Tanya, Tanya go ahead. Yeah. Amanda. Yeah. No, I just also wanted to say when you said you kind of transitioned off of that soapbox and decided or maybe not even decided, your whole perspective shifted. And with that shift, there's an opening now that's happening between you and your husband. And I think that environment now that exists between the two of you will make a huge difference. I think it already is, but I think it will allow this growth to continue. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, we're getting a little bit close to the end of our time, but I wanted to um, turn it over to Amanda just briefly, just just as before we wrap it up. Are you there? Um, well, yes, I am, and I'm actually <laughs> switching phones because my phone is dying, and the, oh, the no. whole show will hang up on us. Um, this has been I, – I really just wanted to thank all of our guests um, you've really um, opened up your hearts to us tonight, and we really appreciate you sharing. And Tanya, for your insights, have been amazing. Um, I have to—I just wanted to add in too, because um, it's kind of a perspective that we didn't touch on. Um, I've—I've I've had to approach this um, as a single person, you know, going into dating, newly sober, and um, you know, where we don't have much time, so I'll just say it's. Um, it's something that you know was very terrifying for me, but I, you know, with um, some time and the things that I've learned um, in recovery, I was able to push through, and it's been really just a, a completely different experience for me. Um, so, um, the date, if anyone out there is in the dating scene, maybe we'll talk about that at some point too. But it's, um, you know, just. Um, what we learned in recovery and being able to really open up our hearts, it's, I know for me it's been a completely different experience, um, just as, you know, all of you have shared on here, and I really appreciate that. Um, normally we go around and ask everyone if they have any comments. We only have a few minutes. I don't know if um, people want to um, just add any any thoughts that they, you know, any closing thoughts that they want to um Leave with our listeners. I'll just go around um, to our guests. Um, 
Let's see. To just go right from the top, we had Sunny. Did you have any closing thoughts that you'd wanted to add? Um, I guess just what really struck me with all the stories was that um, just being honest with where you're at, and that in and of itself is the intimate part. I mean, you know, I told a story that might have sounded a little la-di-da. I mean, we've had some really hard times, and I was really struck by um, the other stories, and those are rough years. And and it's it's the staying with that person through those rough times and just being honest um, and um, and going through the struggles together, and I think that's what um, that's what creates intimacy on so many levels. So, well put, that's thank it. you. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Um, thank you so much. Um, and how about you, Julie? Any closing thoughts that you'd like to add? Yeah, I would just say um, early recovery is a really funny time. I. It was said to me in the first year, make no major decisions. You're going, the fog will lift, and you'll begin to actually understand who you are. And uh, I think we touched on that a lot tonight. In each different instance and different life circumstances and relationships, we talk about growth and humility and love. And it all begins with self-love, and we, we really do learn to love ourselves in the first year. So I think going super slowly and being patient and asking for patience from our spouses. Absolutely. Great, great point. Thank you. Um, and how about Megan? Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to add? I just really enjoyed all the shows and the wide range of experiences, and I appreciate everybody sharing this show. Thank well, you, thank Megan. Thank you, Megan. We really appreciate you sharing tonight. And Lori, how about you? Any closing thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I think it was, you know, it's, it's great to to hear four different women's you know perspectives and and about about the sexual side of our lives and you know I I'm just sort of laughing at myself because you know I I just finished saying how free I was and how much of a knowledge you know leader I was when I was first with my husband and yet how nervous and embarrassed I was and to talk about you know, to talk about this and and um you know it's it's a very personal, you know, thing, but there is just this need to be gentle with ourselves and keep our expectations in check and then I mean for me not buying into, you know, the images that I see on T V about what marriage and sex is like and just sort of separating from all those external all those external um, things that aren't true you know if you listen to this four women with such different stories yet you know we're all thinking that we need to be having these crazy sex lives that are like HBO worthy, and I like. I think that's a nice takeaway for the for the day. You know. Mhm. Yeah. So. That, this is Amanda, I thought it was. I think it's interesting too that you know women are stereotyped as not um, being interested in in this in a in a sex a sex life. You know, there we're always the ones that are you know pegged at being you know saying no when the guy has to 
Megan, you know, here there's, there's, um, I, you know, and I think part of it is, is, is it's different for women, and you know, I know for me, it's connecting on a different level. Um, now mm-hmm. that I actually understand what intimacy is, because I didn't, it used to just be sex, and um, and so it is something that is is important in our lives, and that you know, I think any man listening to this show would probably be shocked to hear, you know, how much, you know, how important we find it. Where you know, we there's a stereotype that we that we're not interested in. You know, I just think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tanya, how about um, how about you? And, and thank you so much for being on the show and giving us some guidance tonight. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, first of all, so happy to be a part of it, and really impressed with everybody's ability to share these stories with us. And it does take a lot of courage to do that. So thank you to everybody. But I think the piece that um, I just wanted to highlight, I guess, is how important the trust in yourself is and then how important it is just to trust connection because we do so easily get caught in our heads and in our thoughts. And if you can try and get out of your head and into experiencing a connection, some of the intimacy can happen without you trying harder, even though I realize it can be scary to do but um, to notice when you're getting too caught in your head and deciding how things should be and what should be and to try and get out of that and trust the connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well said. Billy, Thank any, you. The should. The should, oh, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I took so much away from everybody's sharing and, Tanya, from your insights. Thank you very much. I, I will admit to having to feeling some sort of um, fear of intimacy about even doing this show. <laughs> how pathological I am. This is too intimate. I don't want to talk about it. Um, so I really took so much away. Thank you, thank you to everybody. And um, I think you're all just such vulnerable, courageous, awesome, beautiful women, and thank you. And um, for me, a lot of this really ties back to the first question, Tanya, that you put on your list of questions about, is this serving me? Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I'm really I'm able to hold that mirror up to a lot of things, but when it comes to intimacy and sex, I struggle with it a lot. And um, I always learn so much from hearing the power of other people's stories and other people's voices and hearing all of you find your voice and, and express it so eloquently makes me courageous enough to do it for myself. So I just want to thank all of you for that. And uh, I got a lot out of the show. I really did. Absolutely. Um, me too. And thank you all so much for opening up your hearts to us tonight. That really, it really was a very powerful show, and I learned so much tonight and got so much out of it. Um, but unfortunately, we're out of time, so I'm going to close the show. So I would like to um, give you links to find more uh, information about Tanya. Her website is www. Tanya Cole Lesnick, and that's T A N Y A C O L E L E S N I C K dot com. And you can also find her on Facebook at um, Tanya Cole Lesnick Coaching and on twi- Twitter at T Cole Lesnick. And we'd also like to direct you, you to our parent organization, Shining Strong, and there you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. 
You'll also find a link to Jean's blog, Unpickled, as well as our email address, which is thebubblehour uh, at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback about tonight's show format and any other topic suggestions. And if you would like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly, follow the link to subscribe uh, to our podcast. We are also on Facebook, so please be sure to like our page. And we thank you all for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thanks good so night. Much, everyone. Have a good evening. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.